I'm going to speak about consciousness starting from a completely different point of view. I'm not starting with the brain. Um, I'm not starting with a cerebrocentric view of consciousness, but with the, um, the bigger picture. It's been taken for granted by almost every civilization and traditional society that there are many forms of consciousness in the universe, not just ours and not just those of animals, other animals. Um, so uh, it's been often assumed that the entire universe is conscious. And this, these, this view of consciousness doesn't try and tie it all down to particular regions of the brain or interactions or uh, electrical impulses going from one bit to another. Um, it sees consciousness in a completely different way. And the reason why people in all these cultures think that there are many forms of consciousness beyond our own is because they experience them through mystical experiences, through altered states of consciousness, uh, through spiritual practices, through psychedelics traditionally taken in a number of cultures around the world. Uh, people have the experience of being in contact with a greater consciousness than their own. Um, when Sir Alistair Hardy in the 1960s started the Religious Experience Research Unit in Oxford, he was asking people in Britain if they'd had experiences that seemed to involve a conscious presence greater than their own, mystical experiences. He was astonished. Thousands of reports poured in. It turned out these are much more common than anyone had previously thought. Most people don't talk about them because they, they're shy to do so. They, they're afraid they'd be classified as mentally ill or something like that. Um, uh, and, but recent surveys have shown that uh, as many as 50% of the population have had uh, experiences of other kinds of reality, near-death experiences, spontaneous mystical experiences, including ones that occur in childhood, um, and uh, other kinds of altered states of consciousness, which suggest that their consciousness is part of something greater than themselves. Now, in, in ancient Greece, they had the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, most of the, uh, the, the culture there was influenced by this kind of mystery cult, of, um, uh, which involved an initiation in a cave, which involved taking psychoactive substances. We don't know what uh, they were. Um, but this was a pervasive fe feature of Greek philosophy. And Plato, in his book, The Timaeus, talks about the conscious universe. <clears throat> what he says is, This world came to be, in very truth, a living creature with soul and reason, a single visible living creature containing within itself all living things whose nature is of the same order. This is a vision of the entire cosmos as a living being, a living organism. And... This kind of view was in, inherited um, by uh, medieval philosophers in, in, in Europe, in the universities and in the cathedral schools. Um, they were also influenced very much by the philosophy of Aristotle, who thought that all living beings have souls. The soul is the form of the body. It's what shapes the body and it's what attracts uh, a being towards its end point. An acorn, as it germinates into an oak seedling, is pulled towards the mature form of an oak tree by the soul of the oak. So plants have souls, animals have souls, the planets have souls, the stars have souls, according to this view. In fact, the Greeks, including Plato, called the stars and the planets and the sun the visible gods. 
And indeed, we still call the planets by the names of the gods and goddesses, Venus, Mars, Mercury, and so on. So um, in medieval Europe, uh, this was the standard worldview. Theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas integrated this Greek view, particularly Aristotle's view, with Christian theology to produce a view, an animistic view of nature. Nature is alive, the earth is alive, the planets and the stars are alive, they're conscious beings, the whole universe is a conscious being, animals and plants have souls, and the human rational mind is embedded in a level of the human soul which relates us to plants, which shaping our body. The vegetative soul shapes our bodies and underlies regeneration and wound healing. Um, the animal soul that we have, we share with animals, gives us our animal instincts and emotions like fear, hunger, thirst, sexual desire, and so on. Uh, but the rational mind uh, is that which is specifically human and to do with conscious thought, language, and reason. And that was the standard view in the Middle Ages. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is because it's important to realize what a completely radical break the 17th century mechanistic revolution in science was with everything that had gone before in our own culture and in all others. In the 17th century, the scientific revolution was a revolution precisely because it denied uh, these traditional views. For the uh, founders of modern science, nature was not a living organism, it was a machine. Um, animals and plants were not living organisms, they were machines, automata, unconscious, inanimate automata. Um, uh, the human body was a machine. And in the vision of René Descartes, who's founded this mechanistic philosophy most explicitly, the whole universe is made of inanimate matter, which works mechanically by pushing and uh, by being pushed from the past um, through physical, mechanical causes. Uh, the stars and the planets are mechanical objects made of unconscious matter. The Earth's an un unconscious object. Our body is, the animal bodies are, plants are. Uh, the only things that were not uh, mechanical uh, and unconscious in the universe were God, angels, and human minds. Basically, what Descartes did was deanimate the whole of nature, drain the soul out of the whole of nature, so that all was left in nature was inanimate matter. But outside nature were God, angels, and human minds. And God was supposed to have created the world machine in the first place by being a brilliant engineer and mathematician, I pressed the start button, and then it was all supposed to go on more or less automatically thereafter. So we have an idea of completely autonomous unconscious mechanical universe uh, with the only role for God left to being to start it off and to interact with human minds which were the only non-material things left in the universe. And this is Cartesian dualism and it dominated science for the first two or three centuries of its existence and it created three splits really, a split between religion and science. Religion got God, angels and human minds and morality Science got the entire physical universe, including the human body. It created a split between mind and body in ourselves, that our minds were somehow utterly separate from our bodies, and it, but interacted with them in a way that was profoundly mysterious. <coughs> he thought it happened in the pineal gland. Modern uh, Cartesians think it happens in the cerebral cortex. It's basically the same theory. It's just moved a couple of inches. Um, and um, the, it also created a split between 
man and the animals. We have rational conscious minds and purposes, animals don't. They're just machines, therefore we can treat them as cruelly as we like in vivisection experiments. We can grow them in factories for factory farming. They're just mechanisms. That's the view which uh, dominated science right up until the 20th century. But there was another movement within science in the 19th century, uh, science and philosophy, which, uh, where people tried to go beyond this dualistic view. A lot of people felt it's, to have two completely different kinds of thing doesn't make sense. There should be just one reality. So one school of thought, the idealists, said the one reality is consciousness. Everything is ultimately conscious. Uh, the, the consciousness underlies everything. Matter is kind of done-done mind. This is the school of idealism in philosophy. Idealism here means the primacy of consciousness. It doesn't mean being idealistic about helping others or making the world a better place. It means um, the, the focus on consciousness as the primary, indeed only, reality. That school of thought is undergoing a resurgence today. The best known exponent of it is Bernardo Castrup, uh, a philosopher of mind. Um, uh, but the other, the other uh, school of thought in the 19th century that finally came, became dominant and became the, the dominant philosophy of science was materialism. And the materialist said there's no such thing as this realm of immaterial spirit. It doesn't do anything. You can't measure it. You can't weigh it. You can't see it. Uh, therefore, it doesn't exist. God and angels don't exist. They're just figments of the imagination. So at one stroke, God and angels disappear from this mechanical universe, and that's all that's left is human consciousness, um, the only thing left out of this Cartesian dualism. Then you have the problem for materialists that they haven't been able to get rid of human consciousness. They've got rid of God and angels, but this human consciousness annoyingly persists. Um, and this is where... Um, materialist philosophers have such a terrible job trying to explain it away. As Daniel Seth said, you know, Daniel Dennett's book Consciousness Explained is really an attempt to explain consciousness away as a kind of illusion. The problem is that by saying consciousness is an illusion doesn't explain it because illusion is itself a mode of consciousness. And for those who say consciousness is merely an epiphenomenon, uh, it doesn't really do anything, and consciousness has no activity. Uh, we, we may experience it, but it doesn't do anything. It's like a shadow of the activity of the nervous system. It has no agency, can't interfere with physical causality. We have no free will. This is standard materialist stuff. Um, but the trouble is that it's a hard problem because all attempts to explain it away, uh, in the end, run into in intolerable problems. John Searle, the philosopher of mind, um, described the debate within the philosophy of mind over the last 50 years as follows. A philosopher advances a materialist theory of the mind. He then encounters difficulties. Criticisms usually take a more or less technical form, but in fact, underlying the technical objections is a much deeper objection. The theory in question has left out some essential feature of the mind. And this leads to ever more frenzied attempts to stick with the materialist thesis. Well, some philosophers have decided to give up on that task uh, of trying to stick with the materialist thesis. And um, th that's really one of the origins of the modern versions of panpsychism, the idea that there's forms of consciousness in many different levels of nature. 
Galen Strawson is one of the leaders of this new panpsychist movement. And um, he argues that if we assume there's some kind of level of mentality, experience, or consciousness, uh, even in atoms and electrons, then the appearance of consciousness, the emergence of consciousness in, in humans, is no longer something completely different emerging from utterly unconscious matter. It's not a difference in kind, it's a difference of degree. And this is why many contemporary philosophers are now going over to panpsychism. Uh, another one whose book recently came out is Philip Goff, his book Galileo's Error, is a, a clear and um, uh, I think a forceful and well-argued statement of the panpsychist position. And his motive is primarily to deal with the hard problem of human consciousness. Um, because if consciousness is not just confined to human brains or animal brains, then it's easier to understand why we're conscious, because consciousness is no longer something special just for us, it's something much more widely distributed in nature. A more sophisticated and mathematical version of this is integrated information theory of Giulio Tononi, um, who points out that consciousness has an integrative capacity. It doesn't work unless there's a high degree of complexity which has to be integrated, and consciousness works by integration. Um, and, and so that's its defining characteristic. Um, there's a lot of technical literature on this, um, but I'm just giving a, a, an overview. Now, as soon as we start discussing panpsychism, uh, we realize this is not a new philosophy at all. As I've already mentioned, this is more or less what uh, practically everyone in ancient Greece thought, and also what, uh, in animistic forms, is found in practically all traditional cultures everywhere in the world. Um, uh, but in European philosophy in the 17th century, in response to Descartes, um, there was already a kind of panpsychist reaction. Um, two leading philosophers then were panpsychists. One was Spinoza, the Jewish-Dutch philosopher, uh, who argued that God and nature are the same, uh, that it, it, nature is like the body of God, God is like the mind of nature. And uh, so his was a, a panpsychist, even pantheist philosophy. God and nature were identical. It's just looked at from different points of view. Another and very interesting 17th century philosopher was Leibniz, uh, a German philosopher, um, who argued that the whole universe was made up of monads, self-organizing units, and each self-organizing unit, including atoms, um, mirrored the universe consciously from its own point of view. So the universe was full of all sorts of individual beings with minds that each mirrored it from their own point of view. And each one mirrored it differently because every monad was in a different place. It's just like everyone in this room uh, is mirroring this room, seeing this room from a different point of view, from their own point of view. Uh, but everyone's seeing it differently because you can't have two people in the same place at the same time. It's what I, I, Leibniz called the identity of indiscernibles. Um, so the, um, he was saying the whole universe is full of minds which are all mirroring the universe from every different point of view. The most interesting 20th century panpsychist was Alfred North Whitehead, a British philosopher um, who... Uh, was a mathematician as well, 
He wrote a fundamental book in 20th century mathematics called Principia Mathematica with his student Bertrand Russell uh, when they were both at Trinity College, Cambridge. And Alfred North Whitehead, because he was a mathematician, was the first philosopher who properly understood quantum theory. In the 1920s, when quantum theory was just coming into being, Whitehead got it straight away. Most philosophers weren't mathematicians, couldn't follow it, but Whitehead instantly realized what a radical break quantum theory was. He showed that in quantum theory, um, which treats uh, light and matter as wave-like entities, the quanta are wave-like, and because they're wave-like, Einstein, uh, um, Whitehead realized that um, they, you couldn't have a wave at an instant. You can't have an instantaneous wave. Think of waves on the sea. You can't take an instantaneous slice of a wave and say, here's, here's a wave at an instant. A wave takes time to wave in, and it takes space to wave in. So it's spread out in time and space. So you can't define it in a particular time or place. And that's the fundamental reason for the so-called uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics, that um, fundamental particles are wave-like. Everything, in fact, is wave-like. Um, atoms are wave patterns. Uh, the nucleus is a pattern of waves, too. And the electrons in their different orbitals are, are, are um, resonant waves of activity. So what Whitehead showed is that matter is not stuff. 19th century physics had treated matter as stuff, like little billiard balls. The atoms were like tiny billiard balls, hard, impenetrable stuff that just persisted. He showed that actually what modern quantum physics has shown is that matter is a process. And it's a process because it's a wave. Everything is wave-like, even the smallest particles, uh, even the smallest subatomic particles that you find in the Large Hadron Collider are wave-like. Um, and if it's a wave, and if it's a process, then it takes place in time. And if it takes place in time, it has a polarity in time, a past and a future pole. And what Whitehead argued was that this completely transforms our view of the nature of matter. His most original idea about this, I think, the one I find most exciting and interesting, is that it gives us a way of thinking of the relation of mind and body. Uh, uh, in terms of time rather than space. We're used to the idea that the mind is the inside, the body is the outside, there's the external world, the inner world. We use these metaphors all the time. They're spatial metaphors, my inner life, the inner world, inner consciousness. And indeed, from a materialist point of view, the brain literally is inner. You know, your thoughts are supposed to be nothing but the activity of your brain. They're inside your head, they're inside and the external world's outside, and the body's outside the brain, most of it. Um, so, um, th that we're used to that spatial metaphor. It comes into ordinary language as well. We're less used to the um, time version that Whitehead was putting forward. And what he was suggesting is that the mental pole, the pole of the mind, is the future pole. The physical pole, the body pole, is the past pole. He pointed out that even in uh, quantum theory, when you're do, working out the equations of quantum theory, the Schrodinger wave equation, for example, is the equation that enables you to predict all the possible things that an electron or other particle could do. You fire off an electron from a cathode ray tube, 
in a cathode ray tube. And uh, the Schrodinger wave equation describes all the possible things it could do. Now, these are possibilities. They're not physical facts. Uh, they're part of physics, but they're not physical. The, it's, uh, they coexist as possibilities. But as soon as the electron interacts with something, a measuring apparatus or with another atom, um, then all these possibilities collapse down until you've got one measurable fact, which is now a physical fact. It's now the body, as it were. The body of that electron has a definite place. You can measure it in a particular place. Uh, and it's sometimes called the collapse of the wave function. Well, what Whitehead uh, showed, really, was that this is a general principle about the way the minds work. Our own minds are arenas of possibility, our own conscious minds. Um, our consciousness is, is a, an arena where we hold together a range of possibilities. If we don't have many possibilities, we don't need to be conscious of it. And most of our habits don't involve considering possibilities. We just do it the same way we've done it before. Habits are generally unconscious. They're mental, but they're unconscious. Conscious minds are concerned with possibilities and choosing among them. So, um, for example, all of us um, chose to come here today. We could have done all sorts of other things this afternoon, uh, but we chose to come here. And among the many possibilities, we chose this one, and we made it happen. It's realized it's now a physical fact. We can be measured, photographed, weighed in this room. Uh, it's a physical fact we're here. And our mind's now open to new possibilities. So it's a constant interplay of possibility becoming physical, but as soon as it's physical, it's in the past, and then new possibilities open in the future. So this is Whitehead's um, conception of how minds work, and it gives us a way of thinking of consciousness as something that deals with possibility. Uh, it's a way of, uh, I find, a very helpful way of thinking about the nature of consciousness. And since possibilities aren't physical, um, they're virtual. Uh, they're, they're virtual futures um, among which we choose. Um, it, it helps us to understand that consciousness is part of nature, but it's not something you can physically measure, any more than you can measure all the possibilities that an electron has. You can only measure the physical facts when the wave function collapses, and you can say, well, these, the, the, the Schrodinger wave equation just gives us the probability distribution of what might happen, not what will happen. So... Um, Whitehead was also a very important part of uh, the, the birth of the holistic or organismic philosophy of nature. The old me mechanistic materialist view was that we should explain everything in terms of the smallest things. The atoms are the ultimate physical reality, and therefore reducing chemistry to atoms is the way chemistry should go. Reducing life to molecules is the way biology should go. Reduce it to the smallest things in living organisms, molecules. Uh, so it's a matter of reducing to the smallest, because smallest is best. And that's why molecular biology has an enormously high status within biology, uh, because it's dealing with the smallest bits of living organisms, genes, proteins, etc. Um, but what Whitehead pointed out is that um, atoms are not the ultimate particles. Atoms themselves are structures of activity with a nucleus and electron orbitals, and they're all processes. Um, atoms are processes, molecules are processes, um, 
and that molecules are like, they're like organisms. An atom is like a microscopic organism. A molecule is an organism composed of atoms which are whole, uh, have a wholeness that goes beyond the sum of the parts. Um, in the same way in organisms, a cell is self-organizing. It has its own membrane, its own limits, its own structure and activity. But cells can be organized in tissues where there's a wholeness that's more than the sum of the parts. They're in organs, in organisms, in, in societies of organisms like flocks of birds or schools of fish, uh, in ecosystems, in planets. And planets are within solar systems which, again, have a wholeness that's more than the sum of the parts, and solar systems are within galaxies. So we have organisms at all levels of complexity, and you can't reduce them all to ultimate particles. And the bottom dropped out of the atom long ago, and an attempt to explain everything in terms of the ultimate particle is no longer the way science works. I mean, it never really has worked that way. You don't try and explain the facts of sociology or the facts of physiology in terms of hadrons or electrons and so on. Um, you explain them in terms of physiological processes. Uh, science, in, in effect, although not in theory, is actually holistic. You study things at their own level. Well, <clears throat> uh, if we take this view, then we see that uh, this holistic view of nature uh, suggests that self-organizing systems um, have a kind of mind or consciousness uh, or an organizing capacity, their own purposes, their own goals, which in modern dynamics are called attractors. Um, and it also shows that certain kinds of things are not self-organizing and are not likely to be conscious. An atom, a molecule, a cell, a tissue, an organ, a flock of birds, a, a galaxy, a solar system, have a wholeness that's more than some of the parts and may have some kind of mind dealing with their possible future actions. But things which are mere composites um, uh, are not likely to be conscious in this way. This is also a point that uh, Tononi makes in his Integrated Information Theory. A table, a chair, a computer, a car, um, a rock that's just ro ro rolled down a mountain are not self-organizing wholes. Um, if they were, we wouldn't need factories. We'd grow them on farms instead of making them in factories by putting components together. So um, the very worst possible model for nature is a machine, because a machine is um, uh, made out of parts that are put together in factories according to a design, an intelligent design which is outside the machinery and, it, uh, and fulfilling human purposes which are also outside the machinery. Organisms have their own organizing capacity within them. They're self-organizing their own purposes. Um, and uh, so uh, this kind of panpsychism is not saying, as some people assume, when people are sneeringly dismissive of panpsychism, they say, oh, you're saying this chair's conscious, ha ha. You know, you get that kind of just sneering dismissal. Um, many of you will have encountered it. You know, well, this rock is this. They always pick cups, rocks, socks, chairs, <laughs> computers as examples, um, and uh, which uh, no one is claiming, no serious panpsychist is claiming that these are conscious. They may be made of conscious crystals or with a sort of low level of consciousness or atoms, uh, but the sock or the chair or the computer is not a conscious being. And, and, and self-organizing systems have their own ends or goals. Um, 
And again, you get the contrast with if, you, if you're trying to get somewhere, you get into a car. The car doesn't have any goal of its own where it wants to go. It's go wherever you want it to. If you get onto a horse, the horse may well have its own idea about where it wants to go. It's, it's happened to me in Ireland once. I rented a horse with some friends. and uh, to, I'm not an expert horse rider. And I found myself going down paths that I didn't think were part of the standard route until I found myself arriving at a stable. The horse had simply gone home. It didn't want to go on this <laughs> long ride with me on its back. Um, so um, this, this gives us a view of how minds might work. And it also shows that if, if we're talking about plants, are plants conscious? I mean, there's a whole conference every year in London called Plant Consciousness now. There are whole books on plant intelligence and the secret life of trees and so on. Um, if plants are conscious, they're likely to be conscious about things where they have a choice. They're not likely to be conscious uh, about things which are just purely habitual. Same as us. We're not conscious of most of our mental activity. Most of our lives, are, we're creatures of habit. Most of our um, mental life is habitual. Um, we only use our consciousness when we're thinking about possible actions we have to choose between. Now, I think the interesting point about this panpsychist argument in the present uh, climate is that most panpsychists who are around today, Strawson, Goff, Tononi, Koch, the uh, neuroscientist who used to work with Francis Crick, uh, who used to be an absolutely hardline reductionist materialist, has recently gone over to panpsychism as well. This is a large-scale movement uh, within philosophy and neuroscience. Um, but the main reason they, uh, they've adopted panpsychism is to try and explain the hard problem, human consciousness. Um, so they talk about electrons, atoms, molecules, maybe cells and tissues. But they stop when you get to human beings. I think this debate is most interesting when you carry on. You know, flocks of animals or social groups, ecosystems, the whole planet. I mean, uh, we already have a holistic view of Gaia, the planet, in the Gaia hypothesis, which is telling us that the entire planet is like um, a living organism. Um, and then if we carry on to the solar system, and particularly to the sun, um, I'm particularly interested in this question of, is the sun conscious? And as soon as you raise that question, you realize that you're breaking a taboo. You know, as a modern educated person, you're not meant to ask that question. It's, it, you're meant to sneer if somebody says, is the sun conscious? You're meant to dismiss it as absurd or ridiculous or childish. And the reason it's so easily dismissed as childish and ridiculous is that practically all humans, except us, have taken it for granted. Uh, so the, the idea is we're better than them because we're smarter, more educated, and more scientific, and they're all wallowing in ridiculous superstitions. Uh, also, children think the sun's conscious. Uh, that's why they draw it with a smiley face. Again, proof uh, <laughs> that it's a, a childish superstition. Um, well, in, in most cultures, people think the sun is conscious and usually think of it as a god or a goddess. The Greeks thought of the sun as a god, Apollo, the Romans as a god, Sol. Um, uh, but uh, some people think of it as a god, the, the Hindus, Surya. Um, but some people think of the sun as a goddess, the Japanese. Uh, for the Japanese, the sun is a very important 
goddess in their whole cosmology. In the, in the cosmologies of Northern Europe, the sun was a goddess. And that's why um, in German and in the Germanic language, the sun is feminine, Dishonor, and the moon is masculine, der Mont. Uh, whereas in the Romance languages, it's the other way around. Le Soleil in French is masculine sun, and la lune, the moon, is feminine. So sometimes people think, oh, the moon's feminine, the sun's masculine, etc. It, it depends on the mythic system you're working with. And um, I personally think that the, this view of the sun and similar aspects of the natural world um, is one reason for the evolution of the English language as we know it. In parentheses, um, you know, think about the evolution of our language. Um, the people living in England at the time of the Norman Conquest were speaking Germanic languages, Anglo-Saxon and other Germanic languages, in which the sun is feminine. Um, the Norman invaders spoke French, and the court language in England for several centuries was French. And the English language as we know it is a kind of hybrid of French and German, or French-type and German-type languages. And what did the, our ancestors do when they were trying to deal with the gender of the sun? You know, one lot say it's feminine, the other lot say it's masculine, the moon. Again, the opposite way around. How do you deal with that? Well, what they did do was expanded the neuter gender, which in Germanic languages, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter, expanded neuter to include practically everything except people and ships. Um, so, uh, and, um, and so we neutralized the entire world in English. Um, and uh, I think that uh, this, these conflicting mythologies and genders are actually probably one of the main reasons why that happened. But that's an aside. Um, my point here is that traditional cultures have thought of the sun as alive and conscious. And they actually, um, in India, I lived in India for seven years, and in India, Hindus, for example, take it for granted that the sun is a conscious being, and they relate to it. There's a yoga exercise that many of you might do. I've done it every morning for more than 40 years. The Surya Namaskar, the salutation to the sun, which you do facing the sun in the morning, greeting the sun. Um, and, and this isn't just for physical health and to stretch and stuff. I mean, yoga's been secularized in the West, but in India, um, it's about actually prostrating to the sun because the great power of the sun is that on which all our lives depend. And the most, one, perhaps the most fundamental mantra in Hinduism, the Gayatri mantra, it's a little bit like the Lord's Prayer in Christianity. It's something that is very, very widely known as a fundamental mantra. is a prayer to the glorious splendor of the sun to illuminate our meditation the divine and glorious splendor of the sun. Um, so um, devout Hindus every morning um, make this prayer to the sun, asking for its blessings on our lives. Implicitly, uh, the, uh, thinking of the sun as a conscious being that can respond to prayers. Now, of course, as soon as you look in a physics textbook, then you realize that's not the way physics sees it. It's just a kind of giant hydrogen bomb with physical processes going on that's totally unconscious. But it's not as if scientists have ever proved the sun or the other stars are unconscious. They've just assumed it, because Descartes said so in the 17th century, defined all matter as unconscious, by definition. Um, not by proof, empirical inquiry, rational discussion. A simple 
prejudice and taboo has become established on these questions where they're not valid topics for discussion, except perhaps at the weekend university. Um, <laughs> and in, in most educational institutions, this would not be something you could talk about. Um, so I think that the, um, the question, it's a, an open question, is the sun conscious? And um, then if we think about that a little bit more, well, the first, we'd have to recognize straight away that if the sun's conscious, then all the other stars are probably conscious too. So you can't just confine it to the sun because it's the nearest one to us. Uh, this must be a general argument. Then there's the question of its conscious, then what's the interface between its mind and its body? Uh, well, what's the interface between our brains and our minds, our bodies and our minds? Most people would think that that interface is to do with uh, the electrical patterns of activity in the brain, that uh, that's what it relates to our consciousness, you know, EEG, alpha rhythms, theta waves, delta rhythms, and so on, depend on your state of consciousness. Um, that the, somehow the electrical activity of the brain is what underlies mental activity. This is what electrochemical activity, because of course there are neurotransmitters, but um, uh, so uh, but it's principally the electrical activity that people are interested in, and neurophysiologists measure, and neuroscientists um, measure this activity um, through all sorts of electrical devices, not just EEGs, electroencephalographs. Um, well, does the sun have electrical activity? Well, yes, it does. The sun has immensely complex patterns of electrical activity. It has its whole surface is covered with granulations millions of them, each side of the sun has at least a million of these granulations which are like convection cells which are made of electrically charged plasma. They set up electrical currents through their movements. Then you have annual, you have 11 year cycles of solar activity, uh, the sunspot cycle, uh, where you get more and more sunspots and each sunspot is dark because there's such intense magnetic fields coming out of it that they form huge loops with other sunspots and they sort of push everything else aside. And those sunspots, those magnetic fields interact and underlie the heat in the solar corona. The corona of the sun um, is about five million degrees centigrade. The photosphere, the bit you see when you look at the sun, um, is only about 5,000 degrees centigrade. Um, so th there's a lot of heat generated and it's thought to happen through the interaction of these magnetic fields. Um, and this is completely unpredictable, the uh, behavior of the sun. That's why NASA, the American uh, uh, Space Administration, uh, issues weather forecasts, solar weather forecasts, because the activity of the sun is very variable. Even these 11-year cycles uh, are rather variable. The, uh, every 11 years, around the middle of the sunspot cycle, the sun's magnetic polarity reverses, so its north magnetic pole becomes the south pole. So the entire polarity of the sun flips. But sometimes it doesn't flip that much, or these cycles are rather weak. Recently we've had a very weak solar cycle. Um, so the sun is full of immensely uh, active, highly differentiated um, electrical activity and magnetic activity. And this is instantly integrated through the electrical and magnetic fields of the sun, which permeate the entire solar system. The solar wind comes out of the sun and it reaches right to the end. The whole, the whole solar system has a kind of membrane around it 
called the heliopause, where the solar wind encounters the galactic wind of charged particles moving through the galaxy. Um, and where they interact, it forms a kind of membrane around the solar system. We're all enclosed in a kind of bubble. And within that bubble, uh, everything's dominated by the sun's electromagnetic field, its radiation, and the solar wind of charged particles that are coming out of the sun all the time. Sometimes there are more than others. There are coronal mass ejections when huge billions of tons of matter are pushed out of the sun. Uh, there's also solar flares, which send out intense pulses of charged particles. If one of them hits the Earth, uh, it takes out our power transmission systems, and um, if a really powerful one hit the world, Earth, it would cripple our whole civilization because our uh, national grid and other electrical transmission systems act as aerials for this and would, would absorb this energy and would blow out all the transformers. It'd take months to make enough new transformers to restore the national grid. Um, so the sun can have enormous effects here on Earth. Its 11-year cycles affect the climate, the weather, um, and uh, it could, if it chose, uh, take out civilization as we know it um, at any time. Um, so the sun uh, may have all sorts of possibilities in its mind if it's conscious. And those possibilities would include deciding where and when to fire off solar flares or coronal mass ejections. Perhaps we're not, we don't, haven't had any recently, or perhaps there have been relatively few. Um, they mostly miss the Earth, but if one hits, it's assumed to be totally random within regular science. But um, you know, Hindus who do their daily prayer with the Gayatri Mantra think that the sun's being kind to us because they're asking it to be kind to us. And you know, we may scorn what they're doing and say, oh, what ridiculous superstition, but it may be we're all benefiting from it without realizing it. Um, <laughs> Certainly the average uh, physics department isn't going to do much in terms of making the sun feel good about us, uh, uh, treating it as some totally inanimate object uh, that's nothing but the realization of a few equations in physics textbooks. Um, uh, I mean, uh, but even physicists, of course, recognize that the sun is highly dynamic and there's still a great deal we don't know about it. So if the sun is a conscious being, then what about the entire galaxy? Um, that contains the solar systems within it are like cells within a body. The entire galaxy may have a galactic mind and um, uh, it may communicate with other galaxies. The sun may communicate with other stars. Primarily its consciousness is, I suppose, uh, directed towards its body, the solar system, and the sun itself. Um, but it's also got a peer group, other stars within in the galaxy. Um, and we know very little about galactic thoughts or galactic thought transference. It's unlikely, I think, if galaxies do communicate with each other that they do it just by electromagnetic radiation because some of them are a thousand light years apart, which means it would take a thousand years for uh, a light impulse or electromagnetic uh, magnetic impulses to go from one galaxy to another. Um, and, and then another thousand years, well, hundreds of thousands, there are a billion years, some of them are a billion years apart. Take a billion years to send a message to a distant galaxy and another billion years to get a reply, even if it was by return of post. So two billion years is a long time. Uh, so if they do communicate, then I think there must be some kind of intergalactic telepathy. But obviously this is getting into a realm of speculation that um, is, is way, way beyond anything we actually know. Um, but um, 
And then if all the galaxies have a kind of consciousness, then what about the entire universe? The entire universe may have a mind, a mind of the universe, which is exactly what Plato was suggesting in the Timaeus. Um, the entire cosmos uh, may have a, a mind. And how would its sensory system work? Well, there are some um, neuroscientists who think that the interface between the mind and the brain is not just electromagnetic fields acting as an interface, but they think that the electromagnetic fields in the brain actually are conscious, that that is the basis of consciousness. John J. McFadden, for example, has proposed that that's the electromagnetic field theory of consciousness. And Todd Murphy, a Canadian neuroscientist, has proposed the magnetic field theory of consciousness, that these fields are the, the basis of consciousness. Well, if we take those theories seriously and apply them to the whole universe, the universe is pervaded by the gravitational field and the electromagnetic field. Um, and um, therefore, a mind that could interact with that would know everything in the universe because it would be the basis of where, where everything is and how everything is, its activity. There'd be an instant method for omniscience throughout the universe. Then, um, I know I'm piling speculation on speculation, but um, uh, I just want to deal with a, a, a further point that if we say the whole universe is conscious, then are we saying that's the ultimate limit of consciousness? If we are, it's a form of pantheism, uh, like Spinoza. Um, but all traditional religions have said that the universe is alive and conscious in some way, uh, but there's a, a consciousness that transcends even the universe, that there's um, a mind beyond the universe, as well as the mind within the universe. Rather like our own minds, uh, are concerned with the welfare of our bodies and our social behavior and so on. Um, uh, but they can also transcend all our immediate concerns. We can think about, as we are doing now, the nature of the universe, the nature of other minds in the universe, things that have nothing to do with catching the tube home this evening or what we have for dinner, our immediate preoccupations. Uh, but, uh, we're, but with the, the, the fact that our minds can transcend totally um, the, the immediate concerns of our bodies and our social lives. And so there are, the idea has always been there's a mind that goes beyond the universe. So when we then come to the question of what might such an ultimate mind be, then we have to turn not to philosophy of mind, which is on the whole concerned with much smaller problems, but to theology, because theology is the subject which deals with the nature of ultimate consciousness. And there's a surprising, um, surprisingly sort of lively activity going on in theology at the moment, partly because um, different world systems, like the Hindu worldview, the Buddhist worldview, the, the Sufi worldview, the Christian worldview, are now accessible to scholars. And in a very brilliant book by a theologian called David Bentley Hart, H-A-R-T, an American theologian, um, a, a recent book, it's called The Experience of God, Being, Consciousness, Bliss. And what he does is takes the, uh, this threefold uh, analysis of ultimate consciousness from the Hindu uh, system, Sat, Chit, Ananda, Being, Consciousness, Bliss, is well, how the Hindus think the ultimate mind works. The ground of being is 
conscious. There's a conscious ground on which everything rests, and its being and its consciousness, that's its primary quality, sat, is conscious being in the present, or in all time as well. Um, chit is names its consciousness itself, what can be known, names and forms. Uh, as the Indians say, nama rupa, names and forms. The whole universe is made up of forms, plants, animals, planets, stars, cells, atoms, molecules. Uh, these are all forms, forms of organization. Uh, and we have names for them, which are forms in our minds, which enable us to relate to what's out there in the world. So nama rupa is names and forms. They, these are within the conscious mind. They're not the conscious mind itself. That's like the basis on which, uh, through which these are known. Think of a screen of your computer. The screen's there, whatever you look at on the computer, but there's a, a basis for everything you see there. You can see all sorts of different things, read all sorts of different texts, but there's something there uh, underlying them all. And the idea is there's a conscious mind, the knower, which uh, is that which knows everything that can be known. There's the, the contents of consciousness are not the same as consciousness itself. Then there's a dynamical principle, uh, which is the principle of energy, breath, movement, change, um, which is part of consciousness as well. And uh, being in the flow of that change is joyful. That's why Ananda, Satchit, Ananda. Joy is part of the ultimate divine mind. Um, so um, we have a very similar model in the Christian Holy Trinity, the official definition of God in the creeds, the various Christian creeds, are really statements of this threefold nature of God. God the Father is the ground of being. In the Old Testament, when God announces himself to Moses, he says, I am that I am, conscious being in the present. Um, God the Son is the logos, the principle of name and form, um, through which all things were made. Um, it's the, like the platonic realm of forms or ideas or archetypes of all things in nature. And the spirit is the breath, the principle of energy, change and movement. The principal metaphor um, in, the, in the Holy Trinity is speaking. Um, the, the, I mean, all these things are metaphorical. Obviously, the ultimate mind is beyond our conception, but we can have metaphors which help us to think about it. And the, uh, the, 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 in, in many traditions, the Hindu one as well, speaking has a particular role as a metaphor. When I'm speaking now, um, there is, uh, on the one hand, there's me, the speaker, uh, and there's two other things involved. There's the speaker, there's the words, which have structure, form, meaning, connection, etc., patterns, definable patterns. They're distinct from each other. There's lots of different possible words. Um, and there's also the breath on which the words are carried. If I weren't breathing out as I spoke, you wouldn't hear anything. If I don't breathe while I think thoughts or have words in my mind, they're just silent in my mind. If I have just breath without words, there's a flow of air, but there's no particular structure or pattern. So you have to have both the flow of energy and the form which gives structure meaning and pattern, and the ground of both. And that's the basic model um, the, in, in the Christian tradition and in the Hindu tradition, and there's a very similar model in the Islamic tradition. As David Bentley Hart shows, there are parallels in the Buddhist cosmology as well. Um, 
And so what this is, this is a basic archetype of consciousness that underlies all things. It's reflected in the whole universe. The whole universe has forms and it has energy. Forms are given by fields and fields in the standard science are governed by the laws of nature. In my view, they're uh, habits that um, uh, have a kind of memory. Um, so the, the, um, everything in nature has uh, both a combination of form and energy. An electron, an atom, has form given by the principles of quantum field theory and energy. If it hadn't got the energy, it wouldn't exist. If it hadn't got the form, it wouldn't be a definable entity. It would it, Even light, which is undifferentiated energy, as undifferentiated as it can get, still has wavelength. It still has some form or pattern where light has different wavelengths. Um, so everything has form uh, and energy and a conscious being underlying it. And that same model would apply to our own consciousness. We have, of course, we need energy. We have eat food, we have electrical energy in our nerves, we, we have form that our bodies take up during embryology. There are patterns of activity in our brains. Uh, there's energy flowing through our brains. And some of these patterns of energy uh, and some of these forms uh, are become conscious. And our conscious minds um, are full of all sorts of forms, names and forms. We can form pictures in our dreams. We can see images of things that aren't actually in front of us. Uh, there's always a dynamical principle with moving um, in, in our dreams. Um, so I think that the, when we ask the question, is the universe conscious? Um, then uh, it's possible to say yes, it could be conscious and what's more, its consciousness could tell us something about the ultimate source of all consciousness. Everything within the universe could be like fractal versions of this universal consciousness with a unity of the given of whatever system it is, the ground of being of that system, um, together with the forms and the energy uh, that uh, make it up. Um, and we can see this as underlying our own mental activity. Now, of course, this leads to all sorts of detailed changes in our brains, which neuroscientists can study. Um, but we're never going to understand the nature of consciousness just through studying brains, because then we get back to the hard problem. Uh, you can't just explain consciousness in terms of brain activity. You can find out ever more details about the activity. You can believe, as some materialists believe, that if we go on studying brains long enough, sooner or later the answer to consciousness will just appear. But I think on philosophical grounds that's simply not going to happen. Um, and what we're in at the moment is this fascinating uh, transition point between mechanistic materialism, which works very well for physics, it works very well for making machines, iPhones, televisions, jet airplanes and so forth, uh, but it works very badly for explaining consciousness. And spiritual experiences, which many people um, uh, access through a whole range of spiritual practices, and there's a revival of spiritual practices today. I discuss seven in each of my two recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. These spiritual practices are ways in which we can actually uh, get into a closer direct experience with these forms of consciousness beyond the human level. Meditation, um, although practiced by many people as a way of de-stressing after a busy day um, or counteracting anxiety and depression 
uh, it's now practiced as a secular uh, well-being type exercise. In the cultures from which it comes, contemplative Christianity, uh, monks and nuns in, in, in monasteries, Hindu meditators, Buddhist meditators, Sufi meditators. Uh, the people who've done it traditionally in a religious context have done it not just so they're less stressed and they can cope with the stresses of modern life. Um, they've done it because they think that by getting to the very ground of consciousness itself, the, uh, when you go past the ruminations, you cease to identify with the constant flow of thoughts that are going through your mind. You can reach states where you're in a state of awareness, just conscious being, that that conscious being puts us in touch with the ground of conscious being of all things. The Hindus like to uh, use uh, um, uh, an analogy. They say, think of lots of buckets of water at night with the moon. And you can look in each bucket of water, you'll see a reflection of the moon. It looks as if there's hundreds of moons, but actually there's just one moon reflected in all these buckets. And there's one ultimate mind reflected in all conscious beings in the universe, in each one of us, in every conscious animal, in every conscious being of every kind, stars, galaxies, uh, in the entire universe. Um, so that meditation is a practice for getting to the ground of being. So other spiritual practices, like music, dancing, uh, and sports, which I think is the most common spiritual practice in the modern world that takes people into altered states of consciousness, um, especially being in the present. It works quicker and more effectively than meditation. You can't, when you're 50 feet up a rock face, uh, start worrying and ruminating about whether you've paid the gas bill and, or not. If you're in the middle of a football game and someone's passing you the ball, the, child's, the crowds are cheering, you can't think about some remark your girlfriend made that pissed you off the day before. You, you are totally in the present. And sports are the principal way, I think, in the modern world in which people come completely into the present. Meditation is a slower process. But sports and uh, moving spiritual practices like sacred dance, music, um, uh, but I think connects us with the dimension of spirit, the moving principle of ultimate reality. And I think aesthetic enjoyment, enjoying the beauty of flowers, of beautiful architecture of art, uh, is more connecting with the logos uh, or beauty aspect of spiritual reality. The, um, so these spiritual practices connect us in different ways with different aspects of this ultimate consciousness. Um, I personally think that this is a better way of experiencing it. It's how I think of it myself. I mean, I spent years as a card-carrying materialist and atheist, um, so I'm very familiar with that worldview. Um, but if you want to stick to a materialist worldview and dismiss all these experiences as make-believe, then what you have to do is dismiss your own experience of consciousness, especially if you've had mystical experiences or senses of connection through spiritual practices, including psychedelics, which can provide spiritual openings. Um, you, you have, if you're going to dismiss your own experience in favor of a theory, the theory that it's nothing but the activity of the brain, that consciousness isn't really doing anything, you're putting a theory ahead of your own experience. But since consciousness is experience, and since we're meant to be empirical, uh, if we're going to be scientific, empiricism is experience. That's what it means in Greek. Empirical means experiential, to do with experience. Um, you have to make a personal choice, each one of us does, whether to put our own personal experience of these things, um, uh, to take 
pay more attention to that, especially when it gives us a sense of forms of consciousness beyond our own, or keep going back to the materialist theory, it's nothing but the brain. The materialist theory, as I say, is brilliant for machines. It's not brilliant for understanding consciousness. It leads to the hard problem. And so it's not really the best theory in the world for explaining consciousness. It's probably the worst theory in the world for explaining it. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't lead to the hard problem. But this is a question that lies before everybody today um, because we're on a cusp, I think, between a paradigm shift from mechanistic materialism, which has dominated academic life in our society for decades, um, to a more uh, a rich view of nature as alive, uh, a more panpsychist or animist view of the world, and well, a view of the world in which consciousness is more than just an activity in human brains, and it's an activity, uh, the greater forms of consciousness we can actually access through our own direct experience. The choice is up to each one of us, and we'll have to use both our rational minds and our experience in trying to decide between these uh, different possibilities. Thank you. We're now going to have a short break. Five to seven minutes is what Neil said. Um, and then we'll have a session when there can be questions, answers, comments. Rupert, hello. Um, I've got, I, I don't know where to start, really. Um, my, I guess, firstly, an observation, and that is that I thought that you were going to sort of posit, um, posit a th your theory of consciousness around morphic resonance, around the sense that consciousness is out there in the universe, and that in a sense, if I understand it correctly, you believe that you could say our brains are a bit more like a kind of radio. They sort of pick up a slice of that cons yes. consciousness, yes. Which, is, um, which is unique to us. So I, I was kind of rather looking forward to you um, explaining that and explaining to us where the evidence, where your evidence for that is, and in particular why you haven't published, why there isn't a published paper with this idea, which has been peer-reviewed you know, by scientists. Because let's be really honest, and I'm, I'm really not trying to be unkind here, I'm trying to be truthful, um, you have been, your ideas have been very shunned in the scientific community. And I sort of wondered what, what your reaction to that was. And my second question is really to ask you about your personal beliefs. And my understanding is that you're a Christian, mm. and I completely respect and um, understand the human need for spirituality. I'm not, I'm not just a materialist. But I'm wondering how you have come to the Christian way of explaining the world and why that would be correct and not, for example, the Islamic or the Jewish or, or an atheist or Hindu or any other. So those two, two things, really. Why didn't you talk about your actual central idea? And secondly, what are your personal beliefs? Gosh, these are both huge questions. But, but I think hugely yes. relevant All to right. what we're talking yes, about. Yes, they are. Is, They're yeah. very relevant. Well, first of all, I had intended to talk about morphic resonance in this talk, um, but I always speak from notes, and um, there just wasn't time. If I'd brought it up at all, I would have had to explain the whole theory, which would take at least 20 minutes. And since the title I was working on is, is the universe conscious, rather than does morphic resonance exist, that's what I was speaking about. Um, I mean, I didn't make up the title. Neil, the Vice-Chancellor of the Weekend University, gave me this title. And, um, you know, I wanted to um, 
talk about what the advertised title was. Um, as it so happens, I am very interested in this question of is the sun conscious? And in fact, right now, I'm writing a paper called Is the Sun Conscious for the Journal of Consciousness Studies, a peer-reviewed journal. Um, I've written a lot of papers in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, they're including ones on morphic resonance. On my website, there's dozens of, I mean, there's 90 papers altogether. Um, probably six or seven on morphic resonance, quite a lot on telepathy, quite a number on other aspects of the extended mind. Um, so I do publish in peer-reviewed journals. Um, the, um, it, I, I mean, I do it out of a sense of duty, and so I don't do it because anyone actually reads the papers. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, hardly anyone I know has read any of my papers in peer-reviewed journals. Um, and so uh, it's a more effective way of getting ideas across as books and talks. But they're all there for anyone who's interested, including empirical studies on morphic resonance and many empirical studies on the nature of the mind, particularly the extended mind. I haven't talked today at all about all my work on telepathy, the extended mind, premonitions, animal, unexplained powers of animals, homing pigeons. I mean, I have to focus on something. I mean, the entire universe seemed to um, be enough for one <laughs> afternoon. Um, <clears throat> In, so, um, in, in terms of my own uh, path, I went through, as, um, by the age of about 14, I became a fairly militant atheist, a pain in a thorn in the flesh of the chaplain of my Church of England school. Um, and I, I was a sort of atheistic materialist for quite a long time, you know, until my 30s. Um, then I went to India. I travelled through India in 1968. I was working in Malaysia for a year. Um, and I later, in 1974, went to live in India, where I had a job there in an agricultural research institute. And travelling in Asia opened my mind to all sorts of other ways of looking at reality. I met perfectly rational Indians who thought in terms of the consciousness of Satchit Ananda, uh, you know, meditation and um, the, what's going on in that. So I became very influenced by the Hindu tradition. Um, I had Hindu gurus, I did yoga, I did meditation. Then I had a Sufi teacher. I got interested in Sufism. I had some Muslim friends in Hyderabad, I spoke, which is where I lived. I spoke Urdu. And I was drawn into a kind of Sufi world, which I found very attractive and interesting, and for a while had Sufi practices. And then I thought, well, you know, there's no way I'm going to become a Sufi. A Sufi means you've got to become a Muslim first, you know. And, and I didn't particularly want to have to fast in Ramadan and buy into the whole Quran. And I, I mean, I had been circumcised, so that one of the main obstacles for people, the more painful aspect, was it was all right. So, but uh, so I did seriously consider it for about ten minutes, and, <laughs> and and then I thought, well, I can't really be a Hindu because, you know, Hindus is so much about the land of India, the temples of India, the traditions of India. Um, and when I went to see a Hindu guru and asked his advice on the spiritual path, he said, well, you come from a Christian background. You should try being a, a good Christian. You know, all paths lead to God. And, you know, that's the one that's most natural for you, your own tradition. So I thought, well, I hadn't thought of that. I thought, OK. <laughs> I, I, so I, I, I tried it out, and it worked really well for me. And then I met a wonderful uh, Christian teacher, Father Bede Griffiths, who lived in an ashram, a Benedictine monk in an ashram in South India, 
where I spent some time. I wrote my first book in his ashram. And when I came back to England, I found reconnecting with the Christian tradition was really helpful. The great cathedrals, the holy places, the churches, the, the festivals, of uh, fasting in Lent, all these things made sense to me. Um, but I'm not an evangelizing Christian in the sense I think everyone should be Christian. I don't think they should. Um, I, know, I think Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists are fine the way they are. And if I'd been born in India, I'm sure I'd be a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever. Um, but I'm English. I was born in England. This is the tradition of my ancestors and on morphic resonance principles. It's the one that works most naturally and easily for me. Well, and I, I totally respect that. Uh, hmm. Well, this is another big question. Um, I think that the doctrine of the nature of ultimate consciousness, the Holy Trinity, which is the Christian view of God, as I spoke about earlier, I think is a very good model. It's a metaphorical model of ultimate reality. Hindus and other religions have rather similar ones. A, a Trinitarian understanding, I think, is probably the best model we can have, whether you call it Satchit Ananda or Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, so I think in that sense it's true, in the sense that it's a model about ultimate reality is probably as good as we can get. Obviously, by definition, an ultimate conscious mind that embraces the entire universe with billions of galaxies is likely to be beyond the grasp of our own very limited minds that have evolved through millions of years of sort of hunting and gathering and hundreds of thousands of years of making stone axes and things. Um, so... Um, I think it's likely to be a limited understanding. Um, I think other aspects of the Christian story, um, I think religion's more about practice than truth, frankly. I mean, I pray, I meditate, I go to church services, I go on pilgrimages, um, I sing. These are all spiritual practices that give a sense of connection. Um, and in that sense, they're true. Now, whether or not... Jesus was actually born on December the 25th in AD naught. I, it doesn't bother me much. I'm not very interested in those kinds of details. I'm more interested in the bigger picture and the practices. So I don't think everything in the Bible is literally true. And actually most serious Christians throughout time have never thought that. It's only American fundamentalists who think that. So, um, so you know, I don't think materialism is true. Um, and I think, I, I think it's actually false. And um, I, I think that there are various religious approaches which are more appropriate for some people than others. So I'm not saying there is one truth and it, this is it. Thank you. All right, next question. Uh, thank you very much, Ruben. Um, my question is, if... Uh, uh, natural laws, uh, the laws of physics, laws of nature, uh, are, are best understood as Moore's habits than laws. Um, and if natural systems tend to be shaped by these natural habits or laws, um, re reflecting on the points that you made in this talk, um, that natural systems only tend to be conscious of that which they can choose between, yeah. and that habits themselves uh, don't tend to be conscious, my question is, um, does choice itself necessarily lie outside the laws of nature if they're habitual? Uh, and if so, what might that tell us about the future of the science of choice? 
Well, I think that all habits tend to become habitual. I mean, our own habits, uh, they become unconscious. You know, when you're learning to ride a bicycle, you're thinking about where to turn the handlebars and which pedal to put your feet on and that sort of thing. And, uh, but once you, know how to learn to, once you know how to ride a bicycle, you don't think about it. It just happens automatically. Thinking about it would probably be a disadvantage. Uh, you can cycle along thinking about something else or having a conversation or listening to music or whatever. Um, so I think that the, the habits of nature are largely unconscious. But I think when any uh, self-organizing system has to make a choice, um, then there may be an element of consciousness within it. Um, uh, but then it may go back into unconsciousness. It may as it almost go to sleep. You know, after all, we go to sleep. We're conscious beings. We're not conscious all the time. We go to sleep, and when we're asleep, unconscious patterns of activity happen in our bodies. You know, our liver grows, our wounds keep healing, all sorts. Our brains keep active. Um, all sorts of things happen unconsciously. Um, I'm not supposing anything in nature is necessarily more conscious than we are. Um, I, I just think that. Most, where, the, where the consciousness would come in, is, especially, is when the habits are blocked. It, we go on with our normal habits unless we're prevented. Um, if you have an accident and you suddenly can't walk anymore, you can't see anymore, you have to develop new ways of living in the world. And most things, mutations in biology, uh, many environmental changes that organisms undergo are deleterious. They block their habits. They make it harder for them to survive with the old habits, so they have to develop new ones. Um, then you have the exploration of possibilities, of new possibilities. And creativity, I think, in the evolutionary sense, and in every sense, really, comes about through considering new possibilities, when, which you have to do if the old habits are blocked. If the old habits are not blocked, you just go on with them. And I think that the whole of the evolution of the universe is one where there's creativity at every level. I mean, the, atoms, molecules, crystals, none of these were there at the moment of the Big Bang. All the, everything in nature has come about through creativity, which settles down into habits. Um, you know, and carbon atoms get into the habit of being in certain kinds of molecules, you know, methane and hemoglobin and, and so on, the glucose, cellulose. Um, but occasionally, well, quite often, chemists invent completely new organic chemicals and they'd find themselves in a completely new chemical and a new kind of crystal. These new habits are coming into being, um, you know, hundreds of them every year. Um, so I think that the, 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 the consciousness is coming into play, especially when habits are blocked, and is particularly important when there's a need for creativity, which there is at all levels of nature throughout the evolutionary process. Hello there. Um, I, I was just wondering um, your opinion as to why there's such a pushback um, in academia um, as to the idea of animism and why, um, yeah, why in Western, um, why the Western science community um, is so reluctant to unify or think of spirit and matter as different aspects of the same thing. Well, I think it's it's a historical result of, of the way science has developed in Europe. Um, you know, in, in the 17th century, um, when the sciences were getting going, um, 
there was there was this terrible wars of religion, the Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics. And a lot of people who were in favor of science then said that science was the third way. It involved a direct insight into God's mind. These were not atheists. They were Christian uh, or Jewish. Uh, but they, they, they thought that science, that God was a mathematician who'd made the world machine, that God's mind was mathematical mind, and that by discovering the laws of nature, like Newton's law of gravitation, humans were getting direct access to the divine mind, that science was a spiritual pursuit. And moreover, it was one that was better than uh, priests and, and ministers and things quarreling with each other about interpretations of the scriptures. So um, science gained enormous prestige. And by the end of the 18th century, it became the standard view of enlightenment intellectuals. The way forward is through science and reason and human progress and then technology. Um, and religion was seen as an obstacle. And, and uh, many of these, uh, pro like in the French Revolution, which was based on science and reason, the cult of, uh, in fact, in 1793, during the reign of terror, uh, they pronounced the cult of reason, the state religion. The, the cathedrals and churches were closed. The monasteries devolved, dissolved. Many priests were guillotined. And um, they, they, they proclaimed the cult of reason as the state religion. And so this, the, this, it took on this kind of antagonism to, to religion. And, and the, the idea that the two were in conflict. And you, you, if you were going to be a scientist, you had to be anti-religious, especially anti-Christian. Um, then with materialism in the 19th century, you, you got a further burst of, of, of this kind of materialism as a philosophy of nature, which excluded all religion, rendered it meaningless or useless or a waste of time, uh, whereas science represented progress and reason. And the intellectual atmosphere of universities is really shaped by this kind of enlightenment rationalism. That's the reason that they've come to be the way they are. And it's part of the collective ideology. It's anti-religious, specifically anti-Christian, and uh, materialist in its general tone. There are plenty of exceptions, of course. And um, not all scientists believe this. In fact, recent surveys show that in Britain, France, and Germany, about 25% of scientists are atheists, about another 20% are agnostics. 45% classify themselves as non-religious. But 45% classify themselves as spiritual but not religious or spiritual or religious. So actually, the, the, if you look at the actual practicing scientific community, uh, there's lots of people who are, are not part of this atheist materialist worldview, but they don't say so in public because they don't want to be attacked. Uh, they're afraid that some Dawkinsite will attack them, so they keep quiet. Whenever I give talks in universities about my research on telepathy or morphic resonance, Invariably, after the talk, people come up to me and say, you know, I'm really interested in what you do. I think about, I'm interested in these things, but I can't talk to my colleagues because they're all so straight and they're so materialistic. One after another comes up to me and says the same thing. And I sometimes say to them, don't you realize that at least 10 people in this department who think like you do? And they said, no, there aren't. I said, yes, there are, because they've just told me. Um, and, and, so, I, you know, science would be very liberated. My model is that for people sh it should come out, that science is full of closet holists or people with closet ideas on spirituality uh, um, who just simply 
or, or who've had telepathic experiences, or whose dogs know when they're coming home from the lab, um, that they, they, they just don't dare talk to their colleagues about it. This is a sociological phenomenon with historical roots. I think it's bound to change, partly because these, these historical prejudices that are built into science uh, as we know it have come about through European history. But the majority of scientists of the world today are not European. They're Indian, they're Chinese, they're Indonesian, they're Brazilian, and so on. And in these cultures, they have no reason at all to buy into all this baggage of European history. Um, you know, most, when I worked in India as a scientist, I was in an international agricultural institute. Most of my colleagues were Indian scientists. They were Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, some Jains, uh, some Parsis. Um, they came from a variety of different religious backgrounds. At work, all of them were conventional mechanistic biologists, you know, with the conventional mechanistic assumptions. But as soon as they got home in the evening, none of them believed it. They knew that, that was with the, you have to play the game by the rules at work if you're going to keep your job. But none of them were convinced mechanistic materialists in their own private lives or in their family life. They just went along with that at work. Um, and actually, the same is true in our society here. Most people from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, go along with a kind of mechanistic materialist worldview because that's the official orthodoxy, the media, the educational system all support that. But as soon as people are in the evening at home with their friends and family or at weekends or on holiday, many of them have a sense of direct connection with nature. Many people have mystical experiences. Some people take psychedelics and have totally altered states of consciousness, changing their view of reality, usually towards a more panpsychist view. Um, but they won't talk about this when they get back to work on a Monday morning. Uh, it's a sort of split. Sorry, I couldn't hear that. That's right. People conform to them in private. It's a bit like Russia under Brezhnev. You know, if you, if you didn't pretend to be a dialectical materialist and a Marxist, you didn't get very far. Or China today. Um, um, whereas lots of people didn't believe it. And when communism collapsed in Russia, how many people were true communist believers? I mean, there were some, but they were a minority. And I think the same is true of mechanistic materialism in the academic world today. Um, and... You know, luckily, at the weekend university, you don't have to pretend. Um, this is a much more open atmosphere than in most universities. Thank you so much. All right, that's all we've got time for. Rupert, thank you very much for a great talk. <laughs>